0: The What Are We Doing podcast and the Aquatic Biosphere project acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory and respects the histories, languages, and cultures of First Nations, Metis, Inuit, and all First Peoples of Canada, whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. We're so excited to announce the What Are We Doing's first podcast sponsor, Go Power. GoPower is a trusted, recognized leader in mobile power technology and recently celebrated their 25th birthday by shipping their millionth solar panel. Since 1996, they have offered everything you need to go off-grid, pairing quality products with unparalleled customer support. Use GoPower wherever your adventures take you. We're so lucky to have GoPower as a sponsor with the Aquatic Biosphere Project and the What Are We Doing podcast. They've actually donated a portable solar setup for our travel trailer where we will be bringing conservation education all across the province of Alberta soon. It's called The Minnow. Check it out on our website. It is very, very cool. GoPower takes the opportunity to inspire and educate their audience on the endless benefits that portable solar can provide. They offer educational videos, inspirational van, Airstream, RV, lifer experiences, and share their philanthropic initiatives. You can check them out on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Check them out at gpelectric.com. I don't know about you, but I'm so excited as spring comes on to get outside and shake off this COVID winter slumber I feel like I've been in. Here in the province of Alberta, it's really unique. We have a huge range of different ecosystems. In the south, we have the prairies and the parkland regions. Then as you go further north, you have the boreal and even some of the Canadian Shield sneaks right into the top corner of the province. As you go from the flatter prairies further and further west, you meet the foothills. These enormous rolling hills that transition then to the Rocky Mountains. Now, the Canadian Rockies, they're one of the most protected areas actually in Canada. The entire mountain ranges throughout BC, the Montane Cordillera, over 18% of the entire landmass that they cover is protected areas, which is really awesome because so many people flock to these areas. They are iconic of Canada, of BC, of Alberta. So they're really fantastic that we are actually protecting these areas for future use. But the montane area of Canada is really the standout for the areas that we've protected the most of. Many areas across Canada we have not protected very much of the overall landmass or even of the overall ocean area we have within our country. And one area in particular we're going to touch on quite heavily in this episode. The foothills, the transition from the prairies or the parkland to the mountains, the rolling, rolling hills that If they were anywhere else in Canada, would probably be considered mountains on their own. This area within the province of Alberta is currently a bit up in the air. There are protected areas within it. A lot of it is used for ranching operations. A lot of it is very precious for indigenous cultures. And it's also the headwaters of most of our rivers and streams throughout the province of Alberta that travel into other provinces in Canada as well. But today we're really focusing on the foothills because... It also sits on top of a really large coal reserve. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at coal exploration, what a potential mine might look like, and what are the impacts to fresh water. We talk with Colton Vesey, a PhD student from the University of Alberta, who's an expert on how mining can impact our freshwater systems. And he helps us to understand what should we be worried about if coal goes forward in the foothills of Alberta. <laughs> Air Basser, Bunny, G, Moana, Omi,
1: Tubi, Agua, Low, Inchu,
0: Nihu, Nihu, Nui, Wada, Miri, Echi, Chai, Shui, Maji. Why? water we doing and how can we do better your one-stop shop for everything water related from discussing water its use and the organisms that depend on it for all the global issues that you really never knew all had to do with water I'm your host, David Evans, from the Aquatic Biosphere Project, and I just want to ask you something. What are we doing, and how can we do better? So, you may be thinking, coal mining... Are we still even doing that? I think many people have the impression of coal mining being a miner with a hard hat goes down deep underground, underneath a mountain maybe, and starts to mine coal from these coal seams that run deep, deep underground. They often appear dusty out of the elevators, bringing the coal to the surface of the mine. And that type of mining still does exist. But really what we're talking about today is open pit mining, which we actually have a long history with in Alberta and BC, which might surprise some people. Many people might think of Alberta and open-pit mining and immediately jump to the oil sands region. So around Fort McMurray, we do have open-pit mining for bitumen so that we can create petroleum products with it. The oil sands open-pit mines, while being very large, are very different than these new proposed mines. So we're going to keep our focus on the foothills for now. So for a little background, in 1976, the Alberta government put a Coal Policy Act in place. So this limited open pit mining potential in the Eastern Slopes region, as it's a really sensitive ecological area, and the majority of the province's fresh water either originates or flows right through these areas. And putting the fresh water in jeopardy is a real concern for everybody in the province of Alberta. Not only that, but we share our river systems with other provinces as well. If anything happens to it at the source, it impacts everyone further downstream. We do have a long history of working with open pit mines, but that doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes and that environmental issues don't arise because of them. So we need to look at all the possible outcomes before approving projects. In June 2020, without any public consultation The government of Alberta cancelled the provincial coal policy that had been in place since 1976, and suddenly a huge area of the foothills was up for grabs. Companies began leasing different areas. Companies have now leased over 186,000 hectares of lands in the foothills of Alberta to be turned into open-pit coal mines. Now, this is only including area in what was known as Category 2 lands, These Category 2 lands were previously protected under the previous coal policy. Now to put this in perspective, this is over three times the size of Waterton Lakes National Park. And when you look at a map where all of these mines are distributed, all of the mines are distributed along the weird squiggly line on the left-hand side of the province of Alberta map. So basically from the United States border all the way to where it turns into the straight line going all the way north. This has become quite a hot topic issue right here in Alberta. And due to all of the reaction from the public, the government did actually reinstate that 1976 coal policy. But the companies that had already secured leases are still moving forward with their projects. It's just that no new leases are being rewarded now. The government is now going into consultation mode and trying to get feedback from the public and stakeholder groups On what Alberta's new coal policy should look like. Now, before we dive into all of the potential impacts on water, environment, uh, and the social aspects of it as well, we do need to respect that we do need resources, and this coal will be used to produce steel, which we are always in need of. The question when it comes to resource extraction should always be do the benefits outweigh the negatives? So we need to really understand all of the potential impacts that these resource extraction practices might have before we can make our full decision on whether they should go forward or not. And we also need to take into account, are there other ways that we can get this resource without all these negatives as well? So to help us understand what some of the negative impacts these mines might have on our landscapes and water systems, we spoke with Colton Vesey, a PhD student from the University of Alberta, who studies how mines interact with water systems and has a couple ideas of what might be happening once mining begins in the foothills.
1: So I'm uh, currently a PhD student at the University of Alberta in Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. I study a field called environmental geochemistry. So the field that I study, it's really the study of integrating biological, chemical, physical, and geological processes, trying to understand the different environmental and mining systems as a whole.
0: All right, so we found the right person to talk to when we want to learn about how mines might impact different systems. So Colton, do you mind just taking us through what... Impacts we might actually have to our freshwater systems from these proposed coal mines and exploration in the foothills.
1: Yeah, I think that's what everyone really wants to know. So there are different impacts depending on what stage these companies and mines are at. So to just kind of go through what a mine life looks like, usually it starts off in exploration. They're making roads so they can get drill holes so they can figure out certain geological targets that where the resources are. Based on that, if they think it's financially viable, they move forward uh, into an environmental impact assessment, which is quite extensive. They contract out consultants who do baseline studies on the area to look and see what the environment's like currently. Uh, And then they do predictions into the future of what it might look like after mining and during the mining.
0: So up to this point, we're building roads, we're building well pads, and we're drilling down to see what's down there. But other than these exploratory impacts... We're not having watershed impacts at this point. Sorry to cut in, Colton. Take it away.
1: Once that's done, if it's approved to be an open pit mine, they move forward into breaking ground. And that involves moving vast amount of overburden. And overburden is it's soil and geological material that's kind of over top of the commodity that they want to get after. So in this case, coal.
0: Basically, overburden is anything that's between the coal and the surface of the soil. So soil, rocks, trees, plants, you name it, got to put it somewhere else. What they
1: do is they have to move all that overburden and then store it on site. What happens when you do that, you end up enhancing the weathering of the phases and different minerals that are already there. And associated with that is where a lot of the contamination comes from due to oxygen flow and... Rainwater being moved through it, it really enhances the weathering and of of particular, and some of your viewers might actually know this, um, but the mineral pyrite, it's an iron sulfide mineral that's often collected as a gemstone. It actually, that's the phase that contains most of the contaminants such as arsenic and selenium.
0: Pyrite is also known as fool's gold. And for those who didn't have a rock collection when they were younger, I did, and I still keep it at my parents' house. Thank you, Mom and Dad. Pyrite, or fool's gold, forms into these really cool cubes, and it's a really fascinating mineral to find. But as Colton was saying, it's actually made of iron sulfide. It actually contains a lot of really harmful chemicals as well. Colton also mentioned weathering. And what happens when we pick up all of this overburden or topsoil or rock that's above coal and we suddenly put it into a pile somewhere? Well, now it's exposed to oxygen, it's exposed to rainwater, and all of the contaminants start to leach out of it really quickly. It's also an interesting thing when chemical reactions have air involved as well. So you think of fire. Fire is a chemical reaction. But if you didn't have air, you wouldn't be able to have a fire. But as soon as air enters the equation, all of these new chemical reactions start to happen with the minerals that are now exposed because the overburden has just been piled up next to the mine. And this is the key point. Now that we have rainwater and air reacting with all of the overburden that's just piled up next to the mine, We're starting to get all of these contaminants that come out, so whatever's inside of that overburden can now get leached out, joins with the water, and enters our water system, and ends up in our rivers and streams. This is the key point on how we get some of our biggest contaminants from mining, selenium, arsenic, and nitrate, into our water systems.
1: Yeah. When you enhance the weathering and and the leaching, you can get very elevated concentrations of these contaminants running off into the ecosystem if it's not properly maintained or uh, stored on site, which is the case what we're seeing in the Elk Valley currently and have been seeing since the early 1980s. There have been elevated selenium concentrations above the water quality guidelines. And just for reference, the water quality guidelines here in Alberta for selenium is two parts per billion, and for nitrate is three parts per million. And the nitrate actually comes from what they use in their explosives to actually move the overburden, and that helps uh, break things up. The nitrate also becomes very toxic and, and elevated. Uh, so that's also another concern. Tech resources in Elk Valley, they've been seeing concentrations exceeding 100 uh, parts per billion of selenium and up to 40 to 50. Per million of nitrate in some cases. Unfortunately, though, associated with the elevated concentrations, there's a lot of risks and their deleterious effects on the native species in those areas. So uh, for example, tech resources, they've seen large impacts on the native Westlope Cutthroat Trout populations in, in the tributaries of the Elk Valley and the Elk River.
0: In Canada, we have water quality guidelines for how much of toxic chemicals we can actually have within our drinking water or within our natural water bodies so that it's safe for aquatic life. So when we have a water quality guideline that's one part per billion, what that really means is you can only have one molecule of that chemical for one billion molecules of water. And if you have any more than that, then it's deemed unsafe by that guideline. So To put that in perspective, this is a really, really small amount of a toxic chemical that you can have in a water. So one part per billion, that's kind of the same as saying if you had an entire century 100 years, one part per billion of that would be three seconds. Let's just put it this way. If you had one part per billion of Kool-Aid in your glass of water, it would not change the color of that water and it would not have any taste to it. But with selenium, if you have three parts per billion of selenium in your water, then you're above Alberta's water quality guideline. And it's considered not safe at that point. So when Colton mentioned the tech mine in Elk Valley, this is in BC, and it's the closest similar mine that's pretty recent that we can compare what the impacts of mining in the foothills might be like. So when Colton mentions that downstream of the tech mine, they've recorded selenium at concentrations of 100 parts per billion. That's 50 times greater than what Alberta says is an okay amount to have in your water. And remember, it's not just selenium. There's many different chemicals that are worrisome that might leach out into the water and affect everyone's drinking water downstream. There's arsenic, nitrate, there's cobalt and nickel and other heavy metals, and whatever else might be in that overburden. Now, there are ways that you can manage this. So you could actually put in a water treatment facility, or you could use what's are called saturated rock fills to help filter the water. But you also have to think of the amount of water that you're actually dealing with. We're actually talking about entire rivers that need to be treated. And also thinking long-term, some of these contaminants are projected to maybe even still be leaching out of the waste rock 300 years into the future. Now, one thing that really surprised me with my conversation with Colton was that they actually wash the coal before they can actually send it to market.
1: Coal mining is very water intensive. It uses about uh, 250 liters of fresh water per one ton of coal to actually wash the coal because they have to wash the coal to remove a lot of the dust, what's called fly ash. And this water has to be kept on site because it's considered contaminated, right? It has a lot of different particulate matter and it's mobilizing those contaminants that are already there. But also they have to use 750 liters of recycled water, stored water that's already been used for washing. So in total, they use about 1,000 liters per one ton of coal to wash the coal initially. And then that has to be stored on site. And then they can reuse some of that water for washing. But when you add it up, the amount of water that's being withdrawn is a lot. So the mine that's closest to being in production is the Grassy Mountain Coal Project in the Crow's Nest Pass. Uh, and they're estimating about 4.5 million tons of coal per year for 23 years. I worked out the math a little while ago. I think it was around a 3 billion liters of fresh water per year of water withdrawal uh, just to wash the coal.
0: Yes, you heard that correctly. Three billion liters of fresh water every year just to wash coal. That's the same amount of water that would fill 1,200,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Or if even that isn't giving you the right picture, imagine if you collected all of the water that went over Niagara Falls for 11 and a half days. And that's only from one mine. There are multiple mines in the Category 2 lands that are already in the exploration phase. And if the consultation goes forward with the government and they open the rest of the lands back up for development, then we could be seeing mines all along the eastern slopes of the Rockies. I'm bringing this up as a concern basically because we do need our water for other purposes. The prairies are notoriously dry, and as climate change continues to increase, we're going to need more and more water. We already are pretty stressed as it is. Another thing to keep in mind is that this doesn't only impact humans. This will impact our native ecosystems and native species across the province. And that includes threatened species like the West Slope cutthroat trout and bull trout as well. Both species are really only found in the foothill regions of the Rocky Mountains. And they're already under a lot of pressure. So adding coal mines to the equation is definitely a concern for these species. And many people may not really be too concerned about a species of fish that is already quite threatened, but this is important to many recreational users of these landscapes. That includes everyday citizens, includes anglers, includes hunters, it includes anyone who ventures into these backcountry areas and enjoys the nature that's there. I had such a great conversation with Colton about all of these different implications, and we haven't had time to cover them all in this episode. So be sure to check out the deep dive episode coming out later this week for our full conversation. I wanted to finish off with also acknowledging that there will also be other positive benefits that come out of these mines. So they will create many jobs for people. They will actually provide economic stability to different areas of the province of Alberta. We do need steel to build our buildings and therefore we need coal to produce that steel. But are there any alternatives to the traditional methods that need so much coal to produce this steel? So there are different ways that we can actually create steel without having to rely on the typical process where we need a lot of this coal to create steel for all of our buildings. Now, these new processes are coming online really quickly. So we have electric arc furnaces, and we also have hydrogen iron reducing systems, which are really fancy ways of saying that they're new ways that we can create steel where we don't need nearly as much coal, and we can get the same or better product. So now the question that I pose to you is, are these mines worth it? And that's why I created this episode and released it today. By next Monday, April 19th, 2021, the Alberta government is closing their initial survey where they are looking for feedback about whether or not these mines are worth it, and whether or not the positives outweigh the negatives. The goal of this podcast episode is really to just help inform people on what some of the implications might be from putting these minds in these different areas. I would encourage all of the listeners to check out the show notes because I will leave links right to that survey, and please fill it out with whatever you believe. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but large policy changes that can affect everyone's health and impact our most precious resource, fresh water, cannot be taken lightly and require consultation with the public and all the stakeholder groups involved before we can go through with any decision. Thanks for tuning into today's episode about coal in Alberta and the potential impacts to our water systems. I'd just like to thank Colton Vesey again for taking the time to speak with me about this really fascinating topic. On Wednesday, our full interview, our deep dive episode with Colton Vesey will be released. So be sure to check that out for all of the stuff that we couldn't fit into this episode. If you want to get involved and make sure that your voice is heard, the Alberta government has just released their initial survey for their consultation process on coal in the foothills. So if you want to fill out that survey, it closes on April 19th, 2021. There will be a link in the show notes that will take you straight to the survey. There's many other ways to get involved. Many other organizations are really concerned about this as well and are helping to inform and bring people together about this issue. There will also be links in the show notes to some of these organizations, like the Alberta Wilderness Association and the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, (CPAWS). Also, there's great groups on Facebook that are also striving hard to raise awareness and band people together. I would highly encourage everyone to go and check out that survey and fill it out for yourself. If you have any questions about Cole or anything at all, you can feel free to email the show. You can also feel free to email Colton, and his email will be right in the show notes as well. I'm the host and producer. David Evans, and I would just like to thank the rest of the team from the Aquatic Biosphere Project, specifically to Paula Pullman, Sophie Cervera, Anna Bettini. Thanks for all of your help. To learn more about the Aquatic Biosphere Project and what we're doing here in Alberta, telling the story of water, check us out at aquaticbiosphere.ca. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, we'd love to hear them. Email us at conservation at aquaticbiosphere.org. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave us a review. It really helps us out. Get excited for next week when we talk everything about wildfire and water. Many people are more worried about the fire when it's actually lit. But it's surprising that even after the fire, the effects can be felt for decades. We'll talk all about how fire actually influences how much water we can get from a system, and how fires are potentially changing in the future. You'll hear from Dr. Kevin Bladen from Oregon State University all about the impacts of wildfire on our freshwater systems. Tune in. You won't want to miss it. Thanks, and it's been a splash.